From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. at our world today and I see how our denial of death as a species, our denial of finitude is generating all of this violence. And I ask if we were to break through that, try to break through that denial and accept a limited human future, might we shift away from that denial-driven violence toward working on alleviating unnecessary suffering? Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. He's published essays on religion and culture for the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, and the Washington Post. And he's the author of several books, including Roadside Religion and the Rise and Fall of the Bible. Longtime listeners will recall that we talked about the rise and fall of the Bible in one of our first seasons. Today, we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. Professor Timothy Beale, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much, David. It's great to be with you. I'd like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. My father was a traveling salesman. This is going somewhere, I promise. And so he used to occasionally, as a way of trying to motivate his rather unmotivated son, would occasionally pass off to me tapes. This was way back before podcasting, little tapes of motivational speakers. So back in the early 90s, he handed me this cassette tape of Anthony Robbins, and I remember it to this day. It's a cassette that was called Power Talk, The Power to Create and The Power to Destroy. And on the flip side of that cassette tape, he interviewed a guy by the name of Paul Zane Pilzer. And I remember one exchange from their conversation where Robbins is talking to Pilzer and saying, We always hear this narrative of scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. And Pilzer, I imagine him waving his hands and says, yeah, that's the wrong narrative. We've always been able to think our way out of any limitation that we have. That will always be the case of everything that we do. So I want your listeners to make sure that they never think about scarcity. They always think about abundance. We're always going to be able to grow. I want to start there because that narrative, I think, speaks to what you are trying to address in your book, When Time is Short. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about what Paul Zane Pilzer was saying right there. Thank you. I wish I had that quote. You should have told me this story earlier so I could have included it in the book. That's perfect. That is an expression of what I talk about in the book as human exceptionalism. This notion that we human beings are this godlike exception to the rest of creation and we will forever be accepted from accepted, not accepted from any consequences that that we might create for ourselves than any sort of threat that would suggest finitude for us as a species. 
And it's, of course, a delusional faith, but it's deep in our religious traditions, in our biblical religious traditions, and it's deep in capitalism. Capitalism really is built on this notion of infinite growth through extraction. And behind that is this notion of godlike human exceptionalism, that we can engineer our way out of any problem out of any crisis. And you can see how it has gotten us to this point of denial today where I'm suggesting it might be to the point where we've denied our finitude long enough that it might be too late for us to break through that denial. Well, and I think that's a place for us now to begin to get into some of the terms that you are working with and deploying here. So in the subtitle of your book, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene, I think defining that term Anthropocene for our listeners will help us begin to think about both this delusional faith that you've talked about and also the kind of limitations that we're talking about. Yeah, thank you. Right. We've thought a lot about whether to include that word in the subtitle or not. The wager is that even by now versus a year ago, in the next months and in the next years, that this is going to become a very familiar word to all of us. But it's still a fairly new term, and it's it's language from geological eras, right? So we've been in the Holocene for a long time. The Anthropocene is the new geological era that we are in, and what defines the Anthropocene, it's got that anthropo in the beginning, referring to humans, is that we are now in an era where human anthropogenic or human-caused forces are the most influential forces on our biological and geological systems, on the planet as an ecosystem. It is human-caused activities that are changing our ecosystem more than any other factors, right? And there are arguments about when the Anthropocene officially began, But most would argue it was around the middle of the 20th century, right toward the end of the Second World War with the atomic bomb. And if you look at a lot of different kinds of statistics beginning in the middle of the 20th century, you can just go on Google image search and type in the Great Acceleration. This is what we talk about as that period of time. And you just see this massive exponential curves going up in terms of global population, in terms of carbon footprint, in terms of fuel use, in terms of the number of McDonald's in the world internationally, just all of these different kinds of numbers. And it all begins right there. And this is when most would argue that that human activity really became the main influential force on on the planet. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beal. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Today, we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. Well, this begins to get at, I think, some of the pieces that we want to lay out in this conversation. So the human species has reached a point somewhere around the middle of the 20th century where it could cause catastrophic devastation, not only to itself, to humankind, but to every other species on the planet, all other life on the planet. And in your book, When Time is Short, you begin to meld this reality of the 
uh, ability to have that kind of catastrophic effect on the ecosystem with the narratives that we oftentimes get from religion, particularly Christianity, but also others, that tell us we are meant to have dominion over the world, we are meant to have mastery, we are made in God's image, and in fact, even sometimes we can become like gods ourselves. So start to pull together for me and my listeners the connections that you're seeing between this sudden anthropocentric capability of destruction and these narratives that subtend that ability. Right. Yeah. Really important question and spend a lot of time in the book really unpacking this in depth, uh, trying to move from this theological foundation that's rooted in those creation stories at the beginning of Genesis for the most part, actually just to a couple verses in those creation stories, but starting there with this idea of being created in the image of God and being charged by God with that identity to subdue and have dominion over the rest of creation, which then gets picked up in early capitalism and the early industrial era, which we now sometimes call war capitalism, as the kind of charter for humankind to to go out and, you know, maximize the benefits of the rest of creation. In fact, the most powerful voices from that period of early capitalism, such as Francis Bacon, it really would be outright disobedience to God not to do that, that we would be not fulfilling our charge and blessing if we were not to go out and maximally use everything that is out there in creation. It's all passively there for us to take advantage of in order to realize our godlikeness. And this really rolls right through the history of colonialism and industrialization and into our most recent wave of capitalism. And so there is a sense, in that sense, the kind of religious roots, these biblical roots, find their way into early capitalism. And I think many of us assume that well, yes, those early capitalists, they did think that they were called by God to do this, but we've, we've jettisoned that, those early booster rockets of the biblical stuff, and now we're fully secular and we're post-religious. But part of what I want to suggest is that we're not really, that even though it's often not explicit, that our, again, our capitalist faith in infinite growth through extraction is inspired by that biblical language, that that certain kind of theological understanding of those few texts in the Bible, those are still driving this in some ways. And so I think it's important for us to go back and look at that and connect those up with the history of capitalism and to think about where this has gotten us. And then I think, too, we need to go back and reread these scriptures, for example, to ask whether they really do support what they've been made to support, and whether there are other scriptural resources and other religious resources to explore that might provide us with some resources to find hope, even on the horizon of a finite human future. I'm really grateful for this invitation to rereading, and one thing I want to make sure listeners understand is that this book is a rereading of a certain history of development through capitalism and colonialism. It's a rereading of biblical texts. It's also a rereading of what it means to be human. So there's a lot kind of going on here that I think is really subtle 
and they come together at various points in your chapters in, I think, a very deft way. But I want to circle back to somebody that you mentioned in your answer, Francis Bacon, because I think this is a good example of what we're talking about here. You use this language of Francis Bacon, and you even quote him at length in one of your chapters, where the language that Bacon is using is a is narrativizing nature as a woman to be conquered and to be tamed. And so this takes this notion of anthropocentrism, and you then point out this also brings us to androcentrism, or a type of patriarchal reading of the way in which men particularly are supposed to dominate in history. And so I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about those connections as well, because it's not simply capitalism, but it's a particular type of male-centric narrative within capitalism that has helped to bring us to this point. If I read you correctly, you may say that in a different way. No, you've definitely read me correctly, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. Human exceptionalism is really cis, white, male, European, American exceptionalism. These all fold together in important ways. And yes, with Francis Bacon and a lot of really brilliant feminist historians of science have done a lot with this, and that's who I'm really depending on here. But he would describe in in this letter to a young scientist, sort of fictional letter and other places, the way in which the scientist really was the male and nature, the object of the scientist, was this female potential bride that the male scientist had to really by force take and seduce and force her to give up her secrets. It's very much it's the language of sexual violence. It's presuming the male as the active and the female as the passive and all of these assumptions that are part of Western patriarchal thinking and symbolism. So that's there early on in, in scientific discourse. And in the book, I try to unpack the ways in which Western exceptionalism finds its way into this contemporary situation that we are in, the ways in which American exceptionalism layers onto that. And behind that, a certain kind of, I, I want to say this and qualify it, Israelite exceptionalism. I'm not talking about modern day Israel. We can talk about that if you like, but this is the biblical discourse in the Hebrew Bible, in, in Joshua and Judges, where God tells the Israelite people that this land of Canaan is theirs, it's their promised land, and it is their, not only their right, but their requirement to go into it and dispossess those who are there and lay claim to it. And this is a kind of Israelite exceptionalism. You are my chosen people and these others aren't. And so I choose for you to have this land. And that's what drives that. And Christian exceptionalism really layers on to Israelite exceptionalism. European exceptionalism lays on to that in terms of its view of European identity in relation to the rest of the world. And then American exceptionalism, which is kind of where I'm picking up that exceptionalist language layers on and white exceptionalism layer onto that. So as we're moving towards our first break, this strikes me that in many ways, this present book, When Time is Short, it brought me back in exactly the critiques that you just said, the critique of androcentrism, utilizing feminist scholars to really rethink the way in which the narratives around both biblical texts and our kind of modern texts get 
read in the present day and this notion of Israelite exceptionalism you just said, this all brings me back to one of your first books, The Book of Hiding, which was a rereading of the Book of Esther, where you brought up these same kind of questions about the male gaze and the androcentric power to decenter female voices from texts. And I just wonder about those connections that I'm seeing. Did you feel those same kind of parallels and pulls when you were writing this book? Yeah, I did. And thank you for noticing that. Some people might look at my the list of books I've written and say, this guy is just completely scatterbrained. It's all over the place. They, the subject changes every time radically, which I actually love. I love that about being a teacher and being a scholar is that we get to explore and move in different directions. But I do think that for me, really foundational to a lot of my thinking are these dynamics of othering, of identifying the self over against an other and the ways in which that not only happens all of the time, but also the ways in which that breaks down. And so, yes, in Esther, Esther is exploring that in relation to gender and ethnic identity. Another book I wrote about monsters is thinking about that in slightly other different ways, but also it's about that dynamic of self versus other and the problematics of that binary thinking. And in it, actually, I do a little work around some of the feminist theory, trying to loose a and some of those thinkers who are so important and influential on me to think about that dynamic in relation to the ways we understand nature vis-a-vis the human and understand animal vis-a-vis the human and these kinds of things. So later on in the book, I talk a little bit about how we reflect on these things in the classroom with students and different ideas about nature as wild and how those ideas are constructed around this us versus them or self versus other kind of a dynamic. So I appreciate you seeing the connection there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. He's been on our show before talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Today we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Longtime listeners will recall we've had Professor Beale on before to talk about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Today we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. So I'd like to take a step back and ask you about the structure of this book, because it evolved over time. 
you report in the acknowledgments that this was a difficult book to figure out the way into. You describe in the introduction that at one point you thought about this as being like a letter to your children. Later, you thought about it as like a letter to your students. Now it doesn't read that way. It reads in a more kind of traditional formal structure. Talk to us, forgive the pun, about the evolution of the structure of this book and how it came to be in its present form and why you think this is the best way to try and relate these ideas and tell this story. Great. Yes. Well, even before I thought about it as a letter to actually to my children, I also, I started writing it at one point as a letter to my daughter, Sophie's great grandchild. If we get that many generations to my students, lots of different angles on it. And that was part of the struggle was thinking about how to pull the different pieces together. I really want it to be uh, a reflective book. I want it to be self-reflective, but to be in conversation with those who have really helped me write it. And that mostly has been my students. I teach a course called Religion and Ecology every fall or most every fall. And I have for many years, and they've been reading drafts of things all the way along. But before it got to a contract with Beacon Press, it was a couple other books completely. So it started out, believe it or not, as a book about water. I imagine writing a book about religion and water and uh, worked on that for a long time, wrote a couple book proposals about that that never got anywhere. And then that sort of morphed in conversation with some other editors into a book that was more kind of a pitch about climate crisis aimed at a more mainstream, even evangelical sort of Christian audience trying to confront and wake up and encourage a different kind of conversation in that context. That didn't end up going very far. And then it became after that a kind of history of capitalism, believe it or not. And there still there still are a couple chapters in there that do quite a bit with that. But it was going to be, you know, one of those big fat books that was a history of capitalism and capitalism as a kind of crypto religious kind of faith. And then and it got contracted as that, <laughs> believe it or not. And then I kept trying to work on it and sharing drafts with my students and what I could tell in those conversations with my students, what was really grabbing me the most was also what was grabbing me in my conversations, even with my own young adult kids. And that was the aggravation, the frustration on the one hand with these promises to finally try to address in a significant way and even potentially slow or reverse climate crisis, the aggravation and frustration around that, which has turned into grief and despair about that. And I began to realize that it's the younger generation that's there to teach me that the conversation may need to change. We may need to start trying to break through the denial enough to accept the real possibility that we're not going to be around forever, that we might have a hundred years as a species that looks anything like what life as we know it now looks like. And that's very profoundly there in my conversations with my students. And so every year as I was working on different drafts of chapters and so forth with them, that was what they were responding to. And so the book really moved very intentionally in that direction. And I describe it now as this is not another 
before it's too late book. This is a what if it's already too late book. And they are open arm welcoming of that conversation because it's going on subconsciously or even more explicitly in their own conversations. And so it's not a letter to them, but it definitely is a conversation with them and an invitation to a broader conversation with everyone around this. So that's the shape of it. It, I like the table of contents. It has a little bit of a narrative arc to it. So I'm just going to read that to you and see if it's, see if your, if your listeners think that it makes sense when you hear it this way. So chapter one, after the introduction is soon, all of this will be gone. That's a little story about my daughter, by the way. Chapter two, once we were like gods. Chapter three, we are the gods now. Chapter four, Gods with anuses. Chapter five, palliative hope. Chapter six, back to the beginnings. Chapter seven, humus being. Chapter eight, no hope without grief. Chapter nine, subsistentialism. And then the epilogue, kids these days. So there's a lot there in that answer and in that table of contents to unpack. And so I'm going to kind of take it piece by piece. You talked about an early version of this perhaps being conceived as a letter not even to your children, but to your daughter Sophie's grandchild. And then you used a little aside and you said, if we get that many generations. And then you talked about with your students, the very frank conversations, what if it's not avoiding the disaster? What if the disaster is already upon us? What if it's already too late? All of that leads us to an idea that you bring forward towards the back half of the book. And in fact, one of your, one of your chapters is even titled about this, a kind of palliative hope as opposed to a solution to a problem, a kind of palliative care to the problem. And I'd love it if you could help to unpack for my listeners, particularly what that mental shift entails. Yeah. Yeah. So Palliative care, when we're talking about individual medicine, many will be familiar with it, is about acknowledging, breaking through that denial of death and acknowledging that one's time is short, that death is an inevitable part of life, whether it's in one year or five years or one week, and really taking seriously how that acknowledgement should change the ways we are living until that time comes. So it's really about asking, and this is where the book gets its title, what really matters when time is short? And it may be that we choose to alleviate suffering, even if it means not doing that next surgical procedure, for example, or experimental procedure, for example, that could cause a lot of suffering and maybe gives us a 2% chance of living a little bit longer. Maybe less suffering for a shorter time is preferred over going through that, not only in terms of physical suffering, but the suffering also of our loved ones and the incredible financial cost that that can, that that can bring. So maybe there are alternatives to think about when you're in that kind of a context. It's not, palliative care is not about giving up. It's not about defeat. It's about asking what matters when you know you're not going to go on forever. And to me, 
that is suggestive of a way of thinking about the human future. If we acknowledge that our end is part of our story, then how might that change the ways we are not only living as individuals, but the kinds of values we have as, a, as societies, the kinds of policies that we care about. Such a central theme in palliative care is alleviating unnecessary suffering on the one hand and accepting necessary suffering on the other, what you can and cannot control. You know, I look at our world today and I see how our denial of death as a species, our denial of finitude is generating all of this violence, all of this extractive practice that causes so much suffering, not only for humans, but for other non-human beings and for other inanimate parts of the ecosystem as well. And I ask if we were to break through that, try to break through that denial and accept a limited human future, might we shift away from that denial-driven violence toward working on alleviating unnecessary suffering and working on accepting necessary suffering? And how, that, how might that then speak to our work around social justice and environmental justice? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Longtime listeners will recall that we've had him on the show before to talk about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Today we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. You've been talking in your answer just a moment ago about this notion of the denial of death. And this becomes an important part of kind of setting the stage in the first chapters of When Time is Short, because you bring forward some thinkers who say religion itself in many ways is a kind of machine designed to create a narrative to, de- to deny death and to, de- to deny the possibility of human finitude and limitation. But I wonder if you could make that connection for my listeners, how you see religion writ large as doing the very thing that you're trying to critique here in your book, When Time is Short. Yeah, I I am heavily influenced in this by Ernest Becker's amazing book, The Denial of Death. And he is talking about individual denial of death, the way in which our, we as human beings, we live in this horrible paradox, as he describes it, between on the one hand, having this consciousness that can imagine things in other solar systems and galaxies and can imagine subatomic particles. And we have this expansive godlike sort of consciousness and ability to know. And on the other hand, we die just like every other animal and we rot and we compost. And so he talks about humans as god worms. We're like both god and beast at the same time. And this this terrible paradox, as he describes it. I don't know if I think of it as a terrible paradox, but he does. And by the way, he's very influenced by Soren Kierkegaard, the theologian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard on this. But that paradox leads human beings to deny the mortality side of it and to elevate the immortal godlike side of it. And he talks about the whole history of that denial of death in terms of what he calls immortality projects or immortality vehicles. 
the various ways that we deny our death. And we do that by creating great works of art that will live on beyond our own lives. Or we do that through love, which transcends death. And we sort of describe our loved one as God or muse or whatever, and we transcend in that way. Or in religion, for example, Christianity, we imagine that, or at least some Christians imagine that there is this afterlife, that there is this reward in heaven for our mortal suffering on earth. And that is another immortality vehicle. And war would be another immortality vehicle. We always talk about the ultimate sacrifice, for example, that soldiers make in war. This is a means of achieving immortality in some way for God, for nation, and so on. And what Becker argues is that whether it looks exactly like religion or not, all of these immortality vehicles are religion. They're all religion. And part of what he's also asking, though, is all religion an immortality vehicle? Yes, every immortality vehicle is actually really religious, even if it doesn't talk about God or heaven or something like that. But does religion always necessarily have to be an immortality vehicle, that is, a means of denying death? And he doesn't think so, and I don't think so. And so that shapes my book a lot, right? Along with the notion of palliative care, in that, yes, religion has served to build all kinds of immortality vehicles. But is that all religion can do? No, I don't think so. And I think when we go back even into these biblical traditions that have been recruited to serve our immortality vehicle and the denial that drives it, we can find resources there for a different notion of what it means to be human. And this really opens up for you then a space and you actually conclude a chapter and you say, and this is where I think I can make a small contribution. And then you introduce this idea of earth creatureliness as a way of trying to think about following Ernest Becker, a way in which to have a religion that is not an immortality vehicle. In other words, a religion that is right-sized to our moment of catastrophe. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about earth creatureliness here. I like that phrase, right-sized to our moment of catastrophe. That's good, David. Yes. So it, it, earth creature, earth creatureliness comes from the phrase earth creature. And I borrowed that from Phyllis Tribble, the great Hebrew Bible scholar in her book, God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, where she rereads that second creation story, which is the one in which the individual human is formed from the mud and animated into life and then divided into female and male, she retranslates the Hebrew there, which is ha-adamah, the Adam or human, as the earth creature. We could also say the title of that chapter is Humus Being, and we could also say the humus being. So this term Adam in Hebrew is related to Adama, which is Hebrew for ground or earth. And so the Adam is formed from the Adama and then animated by divine breath into a living being. And so earth creatureliness begins with this notion that being human means being 
sort of spiritual humus, being God-breathed humus. We are on the one hand, and that's our word human is related to humus, right? And so we are connected to the ground, connected to the earth. We come from it. We return to it. We are compost, ultimately. On Ash Wednesday, we say, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. That's, that's earth creatureliness. We don't think very often about that. But yeah, we come from the ground, we return to the ground, we're connected to everything else on this planet in that way. And new life comes from us and our bodies when we return to the ground. And yet we are at the same time connected with the divine who somehow, this text is imagining that we are somehow animated by that divine breath as are other creatures in this vision of creation. So this notion of interconnectedness, interdependence, being part of what uh, Gary Snyder calls the shimmering food chain, and that doesn't have to be terrifying, that can be beautiful, that sense of interconnectedness. So that's really, and I think that's totally there in the Hebrew Bible. It's not every verse. It's not every part of it. You and I know that the Bible isn't a book with a single author. It's a a library, a collection of different texts and perspectives. But there is a rich collection of resources there for thinking about earth creatureliness and thinking about it in a way such that we humans are part of this, but we're not exceptional to, to the rest of it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He is Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Longtime listeners will recall that he's been on the show before talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Today we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Longtime listeners will recall that he's been on the show before to talk about his excellent book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, one of my favorites. Today we're talking about another new favorite book of mine, which is just recently out called When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. So as we've been having this discussion, you were talking before the last break about this notion of religion as a kind of death denial machine, and that we might be able to reconceive religion in a way that doesn't fall into that kind of structure, and instead to find a way of reconnecting ourselves, you use this word interdependence to ecology, where we recognize again through our religious language that we are tied in with creatures that are not human and with plants and animals from the history of the planet. It will strike some of our listeners, and indeed you've, you talk in the book about times when you have written for popular audiences to try and talk about some of these reimaginings. It will strike some readers and listeners that this is not Christian, that in some way this pushes against what is Christian and that you're trying in some way to undermine all of these narratives and to pull us away from the true faith into some kind of pagan pantheism or some other combination of nature worship, tree hugging, that sort of thing. 
And that's why I'm struck by the fact that at one point, about three quarters of the way through the book, you name it, you say, but I identify myself as a Christian. These stories matter to me in the same way that they matter to you. I want to ask about this dynamic of recapturing, rereading, reimagining what it means to be Christian, what it means to use these texts, and to still name yourself as a Christian in the midst of that whirlwind of reimagining and reinterpretation. Thank you for the chance to talk with you about this and think about it a little bit more. It's not I don't go very far in that direction in the book, and that's partly intentional. I really see resources that are available in our tradition more broadly than only to to Christian readers and thinkers. But I hope that those who are Christian, like myself, do see where you can go with some of this and that it's not just a complete departure from Christianity. I understand that it probably is a pretty radical departure from some kinds of Christianity, especially those that really are heaven-focused and see this world as a kind of stage on which we find our redemption and eventually get raptured off in the second coming, which is very much a kind of a, a form of Christianity that is completely in denial, not only of death, but of the material world as having any existence independent of us humans, let alone the animal world and so on. So it's not going to work for certain kinds of, of Christian theologies, but I am a Christian. And for me, well, this is true of religion generally, but it's certainly true of Christianity as, as a religious tradition, that, that religion is always about reinterpreting, about engaging and being bound to traditions that we are also bound to reread and reinterpret in community and in conversation with one another. Religion is a meaning-making, not simply a meaning-receiving endeavor, and Christianity is that. Jesus is our model for that when we read the Gospels and also even reading Paul's letters and other New Testament texts, we can see that what they are doing is they are rereading these traditions, sometimes in very radical and provocative ways. Jesus gets in all kinds of trouble for doing that. And I'm not saying, well, I am saying that Jesus is our sort of our model as Christians for how to engage scripture. And we are always being called to reinterpret and make new meaning from these traditions on new horizons of meaning. And I believe that in the Anthropocene, we are on a new horizon of meaning, and that some of the ways we have been interpreting these traditions just don't make sense anymore. They're bankrupt. And that in the, on this horizon of catastrophe, as you put it, we need to re-engage. And part of what I am really interested in doing is going back into these Hebrew biblical traditions and looking for the places where we can really discover indigenous religious perspectives and ideas and practices that are very much rooted in some of the earliest contexts from which this material emerges, where people were much more closely connected to their locales and to the land and therefore much more in tune with their mortality and with their interdependence. We see this in pretty much every indigenous religious culture. And sometimes we think the biblical 
stuff doesn't have anything to do with that, but it's there too. We just have to tease out those traces that are still there. I think that Genesis 2 and 3 story is one of those. Well, and you talk about this at a couple points in the book, and I'm so glad that you raised it here, that if we were to actually, if we had a time machine and we could go back and actually have interface with those earlier manifestations of both Christian and Jewish slash Israelite culture, the kind of way that we articulate religion and our understanding of Christianity would be completely alien to them, and that the way that they saw their relationship to the world would be completely alien to us. And you even bring this out a little bit. You take some portions of those early sections of Genesis 2 and 3, and you retranslate them yourself using your knowledge of biblical Hebrew. Talk to us about this alienness. What is the alien world that we find there in the Bible, and why would it be so surprising and maybe even confrontational to contemporary Christian thought. Yeah, well, it clearly is for many very threatening because we, maybe some of us anyway, really need for this Bible, for example, to speak to us in our own language and to sort of transport itself over thousands of years and miles and just talk to me now and my problems and that sort of a thing, right? That's the cultural idea of the Bible that you and I talked about last time I was on your show a while back. And part of what I want to do when I'm translating some of this material is to, it's, it's a term that a translation theorist named Lawrence Venuti uses called foreignization, to use translation strategies that actually highlight the difference, highlight the otherness of the text in translation, because we are too familiar, or we think we are too familiar with this biblical material. And it actually is really strange. And those of us who study it a lot, that's part of what we like so much about it, is how weird it is, and how different it is from our own culture and our own cultural and theological beliefs and assumptions. So, so yes, in those translations, and I've done a lot of other translation like that too, I really try to interrupt the familiarity enough to create a little distance between the reader and the text so that there's a little moment to pause and recognize that this is really other. This is really unfamiliar and maybe even incommensurable with our own cultural context. That is incommensurable as in they just don't translate. And so there is a sense in which there's a kind of untranslatability there and a difference there that can be attractive and fascinating to us, but that we also have to recognize we really don't understand. I think we do that very well sometimes. When we don't romanticize other indigenous cultures, we do that well. We recognize the difference. We try to avoid inappropriate appropriations and so forth. But we have these kinds of traces of those indigenous cultural practices and beliefs in our own traditions that we need to step back from and recognize as such. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Longtime listeners will recall that he was on the show before to talk about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Today we're talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. A lot of what you're trying to do in this book, at least in my reading, is to try and 
rehabilitate a way of speaking, a kind of grammar of religious thinking, particularly around questions of what it means to be human and the limits of life and humanity. And in doing that, you, towards the end of the book, you bring in some other model voices. We talked a moment ago about Jesus being a model for how we re-read things, but in this particular case, you also bring in Greta Thunberg and Isra Hirsi, both who are speaking to our present climate crisis, and you give them space to really speak their anger at us and their rage at the way in which we have not, we meaning my generation and other generations have not spoken to this moment and been present in this moment. And so I want to ask you about what is the place, because you talked about a kind of palliative hope earlier, what is the place for anger, for rage, for even despair in this present moment? It's a great question. I think you and I both are probably influenced by the work of Walter Brueggemann around this. And he has a wonderful book called Reality, Grief, Hope, which talks about there being in the prophetic tradition being a kind of movement from the prophet confronting ideology with reality. And he's talking about Israelite exceptionalism in that context. We're God's chosen ones. We're going to be fine forever. And Jeremiah is saying, no, no, you're not. This is what's coming. And then so that's reality against ideology, grief against denial. So when things start to fall apart, the dominant imperial sort of power goes into denial mode about that, whereas the prophetic voice goes into grief mode, grieves what is happening and is already happening and will happen. And then hope over against despair. The imperial narrative goes from ideology to denial to despair when it's too late and everything's gone to hell. And the prophet finds hope even in even after the collapse, even after the catastrophe or in the midst of the catastrophe. And so I think that 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 anger, that rage, that frustration is part of that reality confronting ideology. But I think that it's very much mixed together with grief. I don't think these are separate movements. I think that the rage, there's the sad that's under the mad as the therapeutic, I don't know if that was Stuart Smalley who said that, but at any rate, that anger often is intertwined with grief. And I hear both of those in those voices. And I want to really open space for them and to to lift those younger voices up around that, whether they are more leaning on the anger and rage side, as Greta Thunberg often is, or on the grief side, And, you know, what we do, our older generation so often, is we figure out ways to kind of absorb and normalize those voices into our mainstream culture. And we put Greta as the person of the year. And we, well, she's amazing. She's wonderful. We celebrate her or whatever. And she just stays mad. You know, next time she speaks, she's, I'm not going to, I don't want that. I want you to do something. And so... Yeah, so I think that I want to really lift up that part of their voices that is hard for us to just say, wow, kids these days, they're really amazing. They're such leaders. And with their help, we're going to get the wind and solar out there and get this thing turned around and green jobs and all of that. 
there's a lot of reporting lately that is talking about how Gen Z deals with Generation Z deals with climate crisis versus how the previous generation did, and there is a bit of a shift from fighting to stop or reverse climate change, climate crisis, on the one hand with the older, even millennials, and things to do about it in the midst of it. A focus on social justice and environmental justice in the midst of climate crisis, not necessarily with the hope of overcoming or reversing it, but addressing the real inequities and the suffering that already is happening in the midst of it. And I I think that is very telling about where that is. But yeah, so I think anger and I think rage and anger and grief and despair are very much intertwined. You begin the book mentioning your daughter, Sophie, when she was around four years old, and you talk about how she comes to class with you, and she sits under the table, and she colors, and she hands out the things that she's colored to various students, and then you talk about riding with her in the car at one point, and she's looking out the window as you're driving past the playground, and she says in her four-year-old voice, as you and your wife are there listening, and your other child is there, soon all of this will be gone. And then you come back at the end of the book within the, in the epilogue, Kids These Days, and you return to a conversation now with Sophie as an adult. And you are thinking about these questions with her. And with her, and she's standing in proxy to these Gen Z people that you're talking about. And so I wonder, where, where do you feel that this conversation is going? Where did this conversation lead you? What should my listeners be taking away from this? Because we've heard very clearly that it might be too late to do anything. And we've talked about how oftentimes those who are particularly trapped in the narratives of empire, we might fall into the reflex of despair, or we might fall into the reflex of anger that just lashes out. But you really are trying to concretely offer other options. And I'm wondering if you can speak to maybe some of those other options here. Yeah, I certainly don't want to suggest that it's too late to do anything. It just might be too late to avoid climate crisis and ecological collapse. That doesn't mean even if we have 10 minutes left that there that we shouldn't do something, right? And that's the important part of that sort of palliative thinking. And I call it palliative hope for a reason, because I think too often we think it's only worth doing something if it's in perpetuity. What's the, you might, you, some of your listeners might be thinking like, well, what's the point that if it's all going to fall? Well, are you only doing things now because you think humankind's going to go on ad infinitum forever for the next million years? If it's only a hundred thousand years, are you, are you not going to do anything? I don't get that logic exactly, but I know I hear it a lot. And to me, if time is short, then there's a lot to do. Because we don't have that much time to to right our wrongs, to restore what's been lost, to reorient ourselves toward what really matters and what is most meaningful versus the kind of denial-driven sorts of things that that we spend so much of our time doing as individuals and as nations and as communities. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to do there, but it is... It's restorative work. It's about addressing suffering that can be alleviated and doing something about it. And so so that's the direction I want to go. And I do think that there is no realistic hope without grief. There's no hope without grief. You can't just skip 
ahead to to hope. And that's what we do. This notion of hope that's really actually denial. That's so much of what we're what we're driven by these days. And I want to have that other kind of conversation. Some of your listeners probably saw the movie Don't Look Up. It, it won some Academy nominations and it's gotten a lot of attention. It's a wonderful film, definitely more satirical. My book is not satirical at all, but that helps the medicine go down with the movie Don't Look Up because it's a serious parable of the human situation in which this comet is inevitably going to crash into us. And most of us are in denial about it until right at the very end. But the least satirical and most powerful scene in that movie, and I don't think I'm giving it away to to describe it, is the dinner scene right before the comet lands. And they are around the dinner and they're talking about pie, whether store-bought or homemade is better and all of these kinds of things. But it's this very meaningful conversation, very honest, and it's the profound moment. And one of the characters, Timothy Chalamet's character, recites this prayer that's very beautiful. And that's what almost everybody remembers from that movie. And really, I want to have a longer version of that conversation. I want us to get around the table with a little bit more time to have that kind of of dinner conversation together and to talk about what we can do. Well, Timothy Beal, when I came to your book, When Time is Short, and I say this often on, on my program that I read books very fast because of the need to prepare for these kinds of conversations. What I loved about your book was that it was a book that I absolutely could not read fast because I found myself coming to a passage and having to stop and think about it and even maybe write some notes about it because every single page made me think and more importantly, rethink what I had been assuming about some of these questions. I think my listeners will benefit from reading your book. I am so glad that you fought through the different versions to come to the version that it is right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this book, but also thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. That means a ton to me, David. You know, I think I've wanted to be a writer more than a scholar for most of my life, so that really means a lot to me, and I appreciate it. It's great to talk with you about this. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Timothy Beale. He's Distinguished University Professor and the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. He's published essays on religion and culture for the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, and the Washington Post. And he's the author of several books, including Roadside Religion and the Rise and Fall of the Bible, which we have discussed before on this program. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.